Our scripture reading from, for this morning is from Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. This is found on page 660 in your pew Bibles. And if you guys do not own a Bible, we'd love for you to take one home as a gift from us this morning. So let's go to the word. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Marcus. It's been great having Marcus on our team these months, and um, I know that you who have student ministries, aged kids, have uh, gotten to know Marcus as well, and we're really grateful uh, to have him uh, with us for these uh, few months during this year. Um, again, my name is Bill Gorman, and I serve here as the campus pastor, and we're so glad that you're here this morning. As we prepare to look into this passage of scripture that Marcus has read for us in Jeremiah, I want to do what we do each week, which is just to pause for a moment and pray to acknowledge uh, our dependence on God in this work of learning and studying and, and being transformed by his word. Uh, that ultimately that work of transformation only happens if, if God is at work with us in, in that. So uh, let's pause and pray that he would uh, continue in that work in our lives this morning. So Father in heaven, thank you that you give us the gift of, of your word, uh, the scriptures. And we pray that now as we spend some focused time considering uh, them in this way, uh, that you would continue the work that you are doing in our lives of, of making us more and more into the people that you have designed us to be. Um, help us to see those places in our hearts that need to be um, renewed and made new today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I want to begin uh, this morning uh, by telling you something that depending on where you're at uh, and who you are this morning in your life <clears throat> may sound, uh, it may sound trite, uh, it may sound boring, it, it may sound silly, uh, it might sound obvious, uh, it might sound frustrating, it might sound confusing, uh, it might sound churchy, uh, it might sound cliched. You're probably thinking, wow, Bill, this sounds like it's going to be a great message. Um, I can't wait to hear what you're going to say. Uh, so, so what is it? What am I going to tell you at the beginning of this message that could be all those things? Trite, boring, frustrating, churchy, cliched. This is what I want to tell you. This is what Jeremiah wants to tell us this morning. You can know God. You can know God. That simple statement is at the heart of the Christian faith. That there is a God who exists and that that God can be known. And there is in that a uniqueness in the Jewish Christian faith tradition. If you, if you think about it, 
uh, think about Eastern religions, more like a, a Hinduism or Buddhism, Sikhism, some of the more Eastern religions. Uh, there isn't in those religions a personal God to be known in a personal way. Or Islam, you have Allah who is to be obeyed and revered, but there isn't a sense that as a Muslim you could have a, a personal relationship with God, and especially depending on how you would talk about that relationship, you could as a Muslim even perhaps consider that a, a blasphemous thing to say, that you could have a, a, a personal relationship with God. But, but Christians have always claimed that one could know God, could have a relationship with Him, that you could actually know him, not, not just know about him. Because maybe some of you, the first thing that jumped into your mind when I said you could know God is sort of theology books that well, I, can, I can know a lot about God, that you could study him. And, and that's, that's true, but I mean more than that, more than knowing about him, more than knowing true things about God, you could actually know him. Indeed, this is the whole end and goal of Christianity, that we would glorify God by knowing and enjoying him. The point of Christianity isn't just to sort of make us into to better people who are a little bit more moral or a little bit more kind. The point of Christianity is not to, to get us out of hell or, or even to get us into heaven. If all you want from Christianity is to get into heaven when you die, then you haven't really understood what the gospel and Christianity are. Because you see, heaven isn't just a place with no suffering and no tears. It is a place where everyone knows and enjoys and loves God. And it's because it's a place where everyone knows and loves and enjoys God that there isn't any suffering or tears. We'll have to work through all this, but I want to say again, you can know God. You can know him. You can know him personally. Now again, I, I get it. If you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, this whole thing just may sound, just may sound silly. It might sound foolish. Maybe you're here and you've been a Christian Maybe you grew up going to church, but over the years your faith has kind of dwindled and slipped away. And again, it, it could just sound like this is such a cliche that I heard growing up, you know God. Or maybe you're sitting here this morning and you've considered yourself a Christian for, for a long time. And you hear these words, you can know God, and, and you think they just feel tired. Yeah, of course. I, I get it. I can know God, personal relationship with Jesus. I, I get it. I know God. Or maybe you hear those words, you can know God, and you just feel really frustrated. Bill, I've heard pastors say that my whole life. I've heard them say it for years, but I don't ever feel like I actually do know God. Or maybe what you feel when you hear those words is you feel a longing. You hear, I, you can know God, you, I, I want that. You want to know. And maybe you've even begun to have a sense that you know, but it still feels like there's a gap, something missing, that there's something more waiting. And wherever you're at this morning, uh, I promise I'm not going to 
provide any sort of magic solution to uh, knowing God in some in more in-depth way than you, you ever have before by the end of a you know, 30-minute message. But wherever you're at this morning with that, I want us to feel that knowing God is a task that's too big for us. It's the ultimate task in life that is too big for us. All through the book of Jeremiah, we've been looking at this theme of, of life is just a task that's too big for us on our own. And, and yet what we find here in Jeremiah chapter 31 is a promise. A promise that we can know God. In fact, in Jeremiah chapter 1, we're beginning to find some of the first truly encouraging words in the whole book. Uh, that we've been studying up until this point. Uh, Jeremiah has been having a lot of hard, difficult things to say to God, or say from God to God's people. But when you cross kind of from chapter 29 into chapter 30, you enter into a section of the book that sometimes people call the book of comfort, where Jeremiah begins to not only say, here's some really rough stuff that's going to happen because of all of the wrong and evil and oppression that you're doing, Israel, but here's some promise of something coming in the future. And at the heart of the problem that has caused so much suffering for God's people is the lack of knowing God, of being in a relationship with him. It's the problem underneath all of the other problems. And here in Jeremiah 31, we get a promise of how it can be different. And so here are three things we're going to see this morning as we study this passage together. First, we're going to see that you can't know God without a covenant. You can't know God without a covenant. Second, that you can't know God unless he does the work. You can't know him unless he does the work. And then third, you can't know God without responding. So you can't know him without a covenant. You can't know him unless he does the work. And you can't know him without responding. So let's just take each one of those one by one. First, you can't know God without a covenant. And this is where Jeremiah begins in chapter 31, verse 31. He says, behold, look, he's saying, look, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Okay, so we've got that covered. It's all clear, right? We need a covenant to know God. Super helpful, Bill. Uh, bring on the next point. Right. Of course not. What's, what in the world is a covenant? Why do we need a covenant? I don't even, we don't talk about covenants. Uh, even though the theme of covenant is one of the, the most important themes in the whole Bible from the very beginning to the very end, I think, I mean, for me at least, it's one of those themes that I feel like I understand the least. I don't really understand it that well. What does it mean to have a covenant? Why do I need a covenant to know God? So what is a covenant and why do we need one? That's what we want to look at here. What is a covenant and why do we need one? Well, covenants get at this idea of relationship or, or even kind of the idea of partnership. And again, one of the ways that Christians talk about knowing God is to have a personal relationship with him. And the reason for that is because the Bible talks about God. The God that the Bible presents, reveals to us, is a God who is both of those things, personal and relational. So what do we mean by God being personal? Well, simply that he is a person. He's not 
uh, he's not the force from Star Wars. This is not some, some impersonal kind of force field of energy that you can tap into. This isn't Mother Nature. This isn't an impersonal reality that we hope to be absorbed into or lose ourselves in one day. No, that, we, that God is, is a person with, with thoughts and the ability to speak. He's a person. So God is a person, and he's also, he's not lonely. He's relational. As you look at the storyline of the Bible, what we, we see through the whole thing is that from the all eternity, God has existed not just in, in one person, but in three persons. One God, but three persons. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That at the core of all reality is a relationship of joy and life and energy. Before God ever makes anything, Sometimes we get the idea that God created the world because he was lonely. Well, no, he's this rich relationship between Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And the creation is an overflow of that joy and sharing. So in this, God creates human beings in his image as persons to be in relationship with him. And, and the Bible talks about this relationship with the language of covenant. So take a look. If you've been around Christians, you've probably heard of the idea of having a personal relationship with God, which could mean different things in the Bible, like having God as a friend, or your father, or maybe your teacher. But there's one particular way that the Bible talks about this relationship that you find all over. But strangely, we don't talk about it that much, and that's the idea of a partnership with God. A partnership like working alongside someone to accomplish a goal together. Right, and this is actually what you see at the beginning of the Bible. God creates this good world full of all of this potential. And then God appoints these unique creatures, humans, as his partners in bringing more and more goodness out of all that potential. But the humans don't want to partner with God. They rebel and try to create a world on their own terms. And so this broken partnership is the Bible's explanation for why we're stuck in a world of corruption and injustice and the tragedy of death. It's not like there's just one or two humans who have bailed on this relationship. In the story of the Bible, everyone has abandoned the partnership with God. So what God does is select a smaller group of people out of the many, and he makes a new partnership with them called a covenant. And in a covenant, God makes promises, and then in exchange asks his partner to fulfill certain commitments. And the purpose of all of this is to somehow use this covenant relationship to renew his partnership with everybody else. Now, there are actually four times in the Old Testament that we're told God initiates a covenant relationship with Noah, Abraham, the nation of Israel, and King David. And it's through these that God is forming a covenant family into which all people will eventually be invited. So those are the four covenants that God makes in order to restore his partnership with the whole world. But here's what happens. Israel breaks the covenant. They worship other gods. They allow horrible injustice. And so they lose their land and are forced off into exile. So it seems hopeless. But during this time, Israel's prophets talked about a day when God would restore these covenants in spite of Israel's failure, somehow. Yeah, they called it the New Covenant. And this is actually what's so interesting about Jesus, is that he's introduced into this story as the one who fulfills all of these covenant relationships. Now in our world, it's a little bit on, on this biblical theme of covenant, and in, in our world today, we have... We have kind of two different kinds of relationships that we often enter into. Um, consumer relationships and covenant relationships. So when you think about that, a consumer relationship, covenant relationship, they're two different kinds. 
neither one is inherently bad. Uh, in a consumer relationship, though, is a relationship where my needs are more important than the relationship. That's a consumer relationship. And we have lots of these. So I have a consumer relationship with my uh, cell phone company. I mean, over the years, I've had uh, AT&T, uh, T-Mobile, Straight Talk. And, and as soon as another company offers a better uh, service, you know, I'm not getting that great of service in the area because where the towers are, or someone says, hey, we're going to give you more data or for less money, um, I break the relationship. And I, and I start a new one. That's a consumer relationship. My, the relationship exists for my needs. And when my needs aren't being met, I go, to, go somewhere else. If Amazon doesn't have the best price, I buy it at Walmart, whatever it might be. Consumer relationships. But covenant relationships are just the opposite of that. They, they flip that. In a covenant relationship, the relationship is more important than the individual needs and wants. So perhaps the most fundamental example of a covenant relationship is that of the, the parent to a child relationship. Now, again, when you have a baby, they don't give you a, like a covenant to sign, right? But there's this inherent recognition of that there's a, there's a covenant relationship with this child, that you, are, you have this covenantal kind of obligation to care for, to feed them, to clothe them, to keep them alive, uh, and if you don't keep that covenant relationship with your child, they, I mean, they, they will die. Um, and, and you think about that, okay, my needs versus the needs of the relationship. When you think about uh, a parent and a child, right, did your, did your mom want to get up with you in the middle of the night when you were one month old many, many times? If all she was doing was, if it was a consumer relationship, that would not be what she wanted to do, right? <laughs> you ever been uh, around young, young kids? They wake up a lot. And it's exhausting. But you say, this relationship is more important than my want for sleep in the middle of the night. This little human being, this, this love, this covenant is more important. The relationship is more important than my individual wants and needs. Now, and marriage is the same way. It's, it's one of those places where we actually do, even in our culture, still use sometimes the language of covenant. That we make a covenant promise or a vow, you talk about that. And in those, uh, we say, I'm going to set my needs and desires, I'm going to put those second place to the thriving of this relationship that we're entering into together. In, in relationships, they need covenants to work over time. They, they hold us together, they bind us together when things are, are, are difficult, when, when we have conflict, right? We don't just walk away. That's why when you uh, become a member of, of Christ's community, you sign a membership covenant. It's part of, and we're going to be in relationship together in this church family. Uh, we have covenant relationships, again, we don't use that language, but with our employers, right? That there are boundaries and expectations with our, with our jobs, right? If you start treating your job in kind of a consumer relationship, it's not going to last very long. Anytime you don't want to feel like coming in, uh, you just say, well, my needs are more important. That, that's just not going to work well uh, for your employer. So these relationships, they flourish when you have boundaries and expectations. One of my favorite scenes uh, in Seinfeld, and I'm realizing Seinfeld references are increasingly becoming really dated, and there's like a whole generation of like people younger than me who have not watched Seinfeld. Anyway, it's a great show. You should check it out sometime if you haven't ever seen it. One of my favorite moments in Seinfeld is when Kramer, who's this kind of zany character on the show, he like, starts showing up at this office and like doing work, but they never really hired him, and he has no business training, so he's horribly inept, and, and they call him in to basically to fire him. <laughs> and 
he, he says, you know, well, I, I don't even really work here. And his boss says, well, that must make this so difficult. Um, but, we, you know, relationships, they need these boundaries, these, uh, these expectations to, to work. And so we know when things are working and when they, when they aren't. Uh, and, and friendships are even the same way. Friendships are covenant relationships. Again, we're not, you know, making these ceremonies like we are now friends and these are our covenant. But we, you know when you've broken those co- the covenants of friendship, Right? When you've lied about a friend or gossiped about them or hurt their feelings, like there's certain things that in friendships we don't we do these things and we don't do these other things. Um, I'm really deep, and my staff is so tired of hearing me talk about. It. I'm really deep into Stranger Things right now. I just watched uh, both seasons. So if any of you watched Stranger Things, you know the heart of this show is these these this group of friends, these middle school students who are friends together. And when they're bringing a new friend in, they one of the covenants that they have is friends don't lie. Right? If you've seen this, our friends don't lie. Even our friendships have these kind of covenant obligations we recognize. This is what it means to be friends. Friends don't lie. So they provide a framework of trust and expectation that allow us to know and be known. And if we keep the terms of that covenant relationship with our child or our spouse or our friends, more and more trust is built and more and more vulnerability is able to happen and, and knowing which in turn builds trust, which deepens and strengthens the relationship, allowing for vulnerability and knowing. But what happens when you break the terms of the covenant? When you gossip about your friend, when you lie to your spouse, when you blow up in anger at your child, the, the trust is lost, begins to erode, the relationship begins to, to disintegrate. Oh, if you've been in that situation, you feel, you kind of withdraw, right? You feel a wall sort of going up between you and the other person. You, you can't know them like you used to. And if over time you continue to break that covenant, that wall gets thicker and thicker and thicker. And we will lose the relationship, lose the opportunity to know the other person. I mean, if, if your friend betrays you enough times, right? If they, they lie to you or they gossip about you, enough that we, you stop being their friend. You stop letting them know you. You stop letting them into your life. If, if your spouse continues to be unfaithful, cheat on you, the, the relationship falls apart. If, it, if you fail to care for the needs of your child over time, the state will even eventually step in and take that child from you. And that same dynamic exists in our relationship with God. We are in a covenant with him. If we break that covenant again and again and again, this this wall goes up. God isn't a, a cell phone company that we have a consumer relationship with. No, he is a person. Indeed, he, he is the person with whom we have a covenant relationship and this is how, why, actually, this is how the Bible explains why we consistently feel like we don't know God. If you came in here this morning and you're like, gosh, I feel frustrated in my relationship with God. I feel like I don't know him or I can't know him. The Bible actually gives you an explanation for that. It gives you a framework for understanding that. And it is that there's a covenant that's been broken. That we keep rebelling and rebelling and the problem underneath all the other problems that Jeremiah calls out in his book is that the covenant has been broken. 
Um, he explains that in verses 31 and 32. So we read 31 already. He says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. But then he goes on to contrast it to something else. He says, Not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. And notice God even, he even uses the image of, of marriage to talk about this relationship that he has with his people. Though I was their husband, he says. But what he's saying is that Israel, and we do this as well, it's as though we entered into a covenant relationship with God, a marriage, if you will, with God, and sort of said, God, this is great, um, but I want to keep seeing other people in the midst of this as well. Right? It's just, it's not a recipe for this relationship to flourish. And this is why God is so upset in the book of Jeremiah. Maybe you've wondered as we've gone along, why is there such harsh imagery and language and, and prediction of, of judgment and exile in, in this book? Well, it's because for hundreds of years, Israel has continued to turn against God. And he's a betrayed husband. He's a spurned father, an abandoned friend. The covenant has been broken. As one of my Old Testament professors uh, put it, he says, the problem with God's people in this moment isn't a lack of belief that God exists. They believe, they're very religious, they believe in God. What they lack is a living faith, a radical loyalty in relationship to Him. You see, it's not just enough to believe sort of that there's a God who exists. Calls us into relationship of, of loyalty with him. But God's people had abandoned him and broken the covenant. And yet, and yet, God would not abandon them. And here in Jeremiah 31, he promises a new covenant, a new way forward, which brings us to our second big point this morning. You, you can't know God without a covenant, but you also can't know him unless he does the work. We've broken the covenant. We've cut ourselves off from this thing. God's going to have to do the work to repair it. We can't. We saw in verses 31 and 32 that God's people broken the covenant. There needed to be something new if the relationship was going to continue, and God had to be the one to do it. And so he promises a new covenant. Notice, and it's not one that's new in its demands, but it's one that's new in its effectiveness. God doesn't sort of lower the bar. Grace never lowers the bar, actually. It always raises the bar, but there comes with it a new, effect, a new effectiveness, a new empowerment to actually keep the covenant. So look, look at verses 33 and 34, Jeremiah chapter 31. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least to the greatest, declares the Lord. For, this is the because, because, for I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. 
So what's new about this new covenant that, that Jeremiah lays out here that God, that's coming one day? What's new about it? Well, there's, there's three things here. There's the promise of, of a new heart, of a new relationship, and new forgiveness. So a new heart, new relationship, and new forgiveness. So over and over again, there is this pattern in the Bible that God's people rebel he rescues them. He gives them teaching, laws, instructions that show them best how to live in, their, in the place where they're at. And then they break them all and rebel again. And this pattern repeats over and over again, especially in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, those first five books, that pattern over and over and over again happens. And the problem wasn't with the teaching. It wasn't with God's instruction. It wasn't like he was giving them the wrong things to do. The problem was with their hearts. And the heart is such an important theme in the book of Jeremiah. And when the Bible talks about heart, it isn't just talking about our emotions or our feelings. That's sometimes we kind of, in Western culture, tend to talk about our head, which is like our, our thinking space, and then our heart is where we, we feel our, our feelings. But in the Hebrew conception of, of person, though the thinking, feeling, loving, emotive it's all wrapped up into this one thing that's called the heart. The heart refers to the decision-making, desiring, feeling, loyalty-attaching part of what it means to be a human. And the problem is that our hearts are bent. Jeremiah puts it this way back in chapter 17. He says, the sin of Judah, that's again one of the ways that the Bible talks about God's people, Judah. The sin of Judah is written on, written with a pen of iron, with a point of diamond, it is engraved on the tablet of their heart. And he continues, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The, the problem wasn't with God's teaching. It wasn't with his instruction, his law. The problem was and is with our hearts. That decision-making control center that says, when I've got two choices in front of me, which one am I going to choose? That part of us is just, is broken. It's engraved with sin. That's what this image that Jeremiah gives us with uh, this pen of iron, a diamond-pointed stylus has just been etched into that decision-making controls in our lives is this, this sin. Now, now, sin is a big kind of encompassing word and in Christianity. And one of the key ways that the Bible talks about sin, though, there's a lot of different ways the Bible talks about sin, but one of the key ways it talks about it is this idea of breaking a covenant. One of the ways that you could define what sin is, is breaking a covenant. And because of our brokenness, What's inscribed on every one of our hearts, on this place that makes decisions, attaches loyalty, it's inscribed with iron, with diamond on our hearts, this covenant breaker. It's like the, the side of a car that's been keyed, just etched deep into the material of our hearts, covenant breaker. So now are you beginning to feel a little bit of the beauty, the force of this promise in Jeremiah 31? Because here in, in Jeremiah 17, uh, he says that covenant 
breaker. That's what's written on your heart. It's etched deep into the the very fabric of, of what it means to be a human. Covenant breaker is there. But what's the promise in Jeremiah 31? There's a time coming when God will write on our hearts. That he will write his instruction, his teaching on our hearts. That it's not a matter of trying harder. It's a matter of getting a new heart. This is the promise of the new covenant. That that your heart is this deep engraving of sin on it. But that God's going to write something new on it. He's going to actually somehow erase that seemingly inerasable, inescapable reality that's written on our hearts. And he's going to write something brand new. He's actually going to, to write his teaching, his relationship with us. Because not only is the new covenant promise a new heart, God's law, his teaching, his instruction actually written on our heart, it also promises a new family, or excuse me, a new relationship. God promises here that we will be his people and he will be our God. There's a newness to this relationship. The relationship with him will be restored. And there won't be any need any longer for a mediator or a priest to stand between God and his people. He says, from the very least to the the greatest, everyone will know me. When this new covenant comes into effect, there aren't going to be experts on God. There aren't going to be certain classes of people who know him better. That everyone, there just will be people who know him truly and deeply. So new hearts new relationship, and new forgiveness is what's promised here. And the way that this passage is structured and set up in in the poetic structure of the original language, it's clear that this last piece is the foundation that the other two pieces are built on. So this this idea of of a new heart and a a new relationship is sitting on the foundation of this, this new forgiveness. Why is it that we can receive hearts? Why is it there is a possibility of new relationship? Because, God says, I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. See, the possibility of the forgiveness of sins, the forgiveness of the broken covenant, that is at the heart of the new covenant and indeed at the heart of Christianity that somehow there is forgiveness that can heal this rebellion. This is the promise of the new covenant, that forgiveness is possible and that we can know God. Okay, so how then do we get into this new covenant? Get into this new relationship? Escape the brokenness of our past failures and rebellions? Well, you have to respond. You have to respond. You can't know God without a covenant. You can't know him unless he does the work, and you can't know him unless you respond. You have to respond. It's as simple and as hard as that. Getting into this covenant is is as simple and as hard as that, responding. Uh, Think about a marriage proposal, right? There's nothing so simple as uttering the words, yes, three letters, one syllable, but there's also nothing more life-altering, self-sacrificing, um, completely change the direction of your entire life from that point on as saying yes. The, the same is true in this covenant relationship with God. There's, it's, 
it's nothing so we're just responding all we're doing is saying yes i want in but in the midst of that it's the most life altering thing that we could possibly experience so what does responding to the covenant look like well first it means saying yes committing yourself to god's promise that's what it means to have faith in god that we believe his promise in such a way that we commit our lives to him and when we believe in that kind of way we're made new. We're born again. Sometimes you hear that language used. Given new hearts, new relationship, new access. And committing isn't just acknowledging the fact that a promise, that a covenant has been made. It means loving the one who makes it with you. So let me just ask you this morning, have you committed to the promise? Have you said yes Maybe this morning you thought, you came in, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm a Christian. But today, as you've heard this message from Jeremiah, you've begun to realize that actually I've, I've never committed to God. I've never said yes to this promise. I've never really understood this idea of covenant. If that's where you're at this morning, I just encourage you, maybe perhaps during the communion moment later on, just in the quietness of your heart to say, Jesus... You are my only hope in life and in death. And I commit myself to you no matter what. And in faith, begin the journey of knowing God. Which is the second thing. Once you've committed to him and his promise, get to know him better. We practice the spiritual disciplines of, of Bible study and prayer and engaging in community, gathering together so that we can know God better. And finally, celebrate the one who fulfills it all. Because here in Jeremiah 31, we just get this hint that there's a promise of forgiveness of sins coming. But we're not told how that happens. Jeremiah doesn't spell out, like, how, are, how is all this sin going to get forgiven? How is God going to deal with this? But in the New Testament book of Hebrews, the author quotes the new covenant promise from Jeremiah 31 multiple times and points to Jesus as the fulfillment of it all. With Jesus, the promise is already here, and yet it's also not fully yet. We've begun to experience the promise and, and the goodness and the reality of the new covenant, and yet there's parts of it that we won't fully experience until the new creation. But Jesus is the one who, who fulfills it all. He's the one who makes the promise, and he keeps it on your behalf perfectly. And not only does he make forgiveness possible, he's the one who invites you into that forgiveness. Because how is forgiveness, how does forgiveness happen in, in human relationships? If you break a covenant with your, with your friend or with your spouse or with a child, how does that relationship re get repaired? Well, the one who's done the breaking has to go to the person and say, would you absorb that brokenness into yourself? Would you take the pain and loss and hurt and betrayal that I've caused you And not make me pay? Would you invite me back in? And this is what Jesus does. He suffers the loneliness, the abandonment, the despair, the alienation that every covenant breaker rightly deserves, that he can forgive our covenant breaking our sin and bring us into new life. And there's an ancient picture of this that we as Christians have practiced for 2,000 years. It's strange but beautiful. It's a sign, a physical sign that reminds us what Christ has done for us. That entering into this covenant is a bit like drowning. 
And we're dead and we're buried with Christ with all of our shame and all of our disappointments and regret. And that saying yes to him is no small task. But with Jesus, we don't stay dead. We emerge washed, clean, pure, new hearts with him, alive, truly alive. So baptism is the sign that we've entered into that covenant. It's the, sort of the front end. And then we celebrate communion each week. As a, as a renewal of that same covenant, this new covenant, this celebration, Jesus actually says when he celebrates the Last Supper, introduces us to the Lord's Supper community, he says, this is the new covenant that I'm making with you. And so this morning we, as we do each week, celebrate the communion meal together as uh, a renewal of that covenant and celebrating the goodness of that together.